So there's this scene in The Lion, the, Lit, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis's classic series, The Chronicles of Narnia, where the children are learning about Aslan for the first time. Now, I'm not talking about the movie. The movie messes up this scene. This is from the book. And Mr. Beaver says this. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now you'll notice in this short dialogue that the children are they're learning about Aslan for the first time. And as they're being introduced to him, they feel a tension. Did you notice it? There's a tension. See, on the one hand, Aslan is a lion. And lions aren't safe. Despite what you might have seen on Tiger King, they're not, they're not something you should be like hanging out with, Right? But on the other hand, this lion is the lion. He's the great lion. And this lion is good. See, it's, just pre it's precisely this tension that makes Aslan both powerful and trustworthy. He's both good and just. He isn't some tame, palatable God figure with all the tensions nicely, logically worked out. And as you read through scripture, one thing you're going to find is that you're going to come face to face with these tensions, these, these two truths that seem like they can't both be true at the same time. See, there's a tension with God between his goodness, mercy, and love on the one hand, and his authority, justice, and wrath on the other. See, with God, it's not either or. And this morning, as we continue in our series in the book of Genesis, part one, called Creation and Exile, we're coming to the flood. And when you come to the flood, you come face to face with that tension. See, on one hand, the flood is this story about the salvation of a man, his family, all the necessary animals and seeds to repopulate the earth. And it's a story of salvation. Yet on the other hand, the flood is a devastating judgment on humanity where everyone and everything else dies. It's tragic. It's not like the flannel board story you may have heard growing up in church. It's not like the children's stories that kind of just leaves that part out with the nice pictures and Noah and his boat and all the animals. There is a tension. And we come face to face with it. And here's the tension. God is good to judge people for sin. It's true, he is good to judge people for sin. At the same time, he's good to save people from sin. It's not either or, it's both. Psalm 119 verse 68 says that God is good and he does good. And so God is good to save Noah out of judgment. He's also good at the same time to execute judgment. Do you feel the tension between those two things? 
And instead of pretending like this tension doesn't exist, we want to enter into, lean into that tension this morning. And it's an important tension because it's not just in the flood. You are going to come face to face with this tension all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You're going to come into this tension in the New Testament. And it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to understand the story of Scripture, to know who God is. And most importantly, if we don't lean into that tension this morning, we won't understand the cross we won't understand the gospel so here's my plan for this morning i want to revisit the flood story it's a really familiar story and a lot of times when things are familiar we can kind of overlook some of the details and so i'm going to revisit the flood it's a simple story with a simple plot line even people without any biblical literacy whatsoever have heard of the flood but it is a story worth revisiting. It's going to show us the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment. It's also going to show us that even in judgment, God provides salvation. And in fact, it gives us one of the earliest glimpses of how God plans to judge people for sin and to save people from sin. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a preview, a teaser trailer of how God is going to play out his master plan of redemption. It also causes us to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. You see, the flood is not a neutral story. No one can hear the story, read the story, and come away going, huh, that was, that was nice. It brings us to the point of a decision. And so I'm going to tell the story of the flood in three parts. We'll see the need for judgment, the flood of judgment, and then salvation from judgment. That's really the basic storyline. There's a need for judgment, the flood of judgment, and then salvation from judgment. And at the end, I'm going to have us consider how we can respond to a story like this. And all the while, I want you to keep that tension in mind that God is good both to execute judgment and to extend grace. So let's start in chapter 6, verse 5, with the need for judgment. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now right off the bat, Moses gives us a summary statement about how things are going. And at first glance, you might be tempted to think that this is hyperbole. But friends, this is not hyperbole. This is God, the Holy Spirit, giving Moses insight just into how depraved and wicked the human heart had become. What started back in the garden in Genesis 3 has now spread throughout humanity in a prolific manner. Think of uh, yeast working its way through a lump of dough. How many of you started baking during the pandemic? I did. I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. Started making bread. There was like nothing else to do, right? And so you've got this lump of dough and you've got yeast and you're waiting for it to work its way through. And when a lump of dough is given enough time to rise, what happens? Well, that yeast begins to eat the sugars and it works its way in and through and spreads throughout the whole lump. Genesis 6-5 is an important verse because we have a tendency to downplay the sin of humanity. We assume things aren't really as bad or prolific as it is. And this verse cuts through all of that as to say, no, 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 no. It's actually far worse than you think. Whatever level you think and how bad you think sin is, the Bible says it's far worse than that. 
You might see it in external ways, but it's also hidden in the internal recesses of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We can prove my point by saying, who in here would love to have the thoughts and intentions of their heart exposed on a video for all to see? All of us would pass on that one. It's wicked and it's bad. In fact, this isn't the only assessment of the current state of affairs. If you skip down to verse 11 and 12, Moses writes, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. If you remember the last time God looked down and beheld the earth and made an assessment, it was after the last day of creation in Genesis 1. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And this verse in chapter 6, verse 11, is written with similar language to highlight the contrast, right? In Genesis 1, it was very good. But by the end of Genesis 1, and at the time of the flood, the earth is no longer very good. It's actually what? Very wicked. It's filled with violence and corruption. And not only do we get insight into the heart of man, in verse 6, Moses gives us insight into the heart of God. Maybe you heard it. Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Here we learn that God regrets having made man, and that the state of affairs, when he looks on things, grieves his heart. Now we need to do a little bit of work here. What does it mean for a God who's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good to regret and grieve. See, the testimony of Scripture is clear. God is not like us. He's other than us. He doesn't lack knowledge or power. Every decision he makes is the best decision according to his perfect will every single time. So what does it mean for God to regret? Let me give you a couple of verses in 1 Samuel 15 that help tease it out even further, leaning into that tension even more. In uh, 1 Samuel 15, God is commenting on having made Saul king. He says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then you jump down to verse 29. In same chapter, same author, and the glory of Israel, which is another name for God, will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. So if you're paying attention, one verse says God regrets. A couple verses later it says God doesn't regret. That seems like a mutual contra uh, contradiction, doesn't it? Are these verses in contradiction or are they helping us see attention? See, the Lord doesn't change his mind. He doesn't passively react to situations and circumstances. But at the same time, God is not stoic and disconnected from his creation. He's not like an idol made of stone. God yet is Yes, he's eternal, God's outside of time, but he's also the Lord of time, which means he can interact and engage with his creation, most especially with humanity, in real time, moment by moment. So on the one hand, God doesn't regret like you and I do. See, when you and I talk about regrets, when you and I talk about remorses, what happens? What, what we're doing is we're looking back on a situation with the hindsight that we have after it, right? Right? And we're saying, look, if I could have done that situation again, if I could replay it, or if I could get a, a do-over, there are things I wouldn't have said. 
I'd, I'd take some of those things back or, or there's things I wouldn't have done or I would do them differently. Knowing what I know now, I would go through that experience differently, right? Everybody has felt that feeling. Everybody has looked back on, on, on our actions and events and said, if I could do it over, I'd do it differently. That's regret. That's how we regret. But that's not how God regrets. He would do nothing differently. Everything he does is altogether perfect, righteous, and good. The Bible is clear. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's good news right there. God is not capricious. He's not changing his mind. He's not saying, hey, I'll save you one day and then I won't. He doesn't play this game. Hey, today I love you, but tomorrow I don't. He does not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. He's never acting passively. He's never reacting to situations and circumstances. He's never taken over by emotion. But at the same time, it's true that God experiences a divine emotional life. It's not like our emotional life. It's a divine one. So when God grieves or or regrets, he does so in a way that is perfectly consistent with his nature and character with absolute divine perfection. It's qualitatively different than how you and I experience emotions. When God is grieved, he is only grieved by that which is absolutely grievous. And so somehow we've got to hold these truths together in tension and realize that our finite, limited language is completely inadequate to fully articulate the intricacies of an infinite God. What I'm saying is there's a mystery about God that we can't logically work out in every little detail. And so what we have here in Genesis 6 is God giving us a real-time assessment of how regrettable and grievous it is that humanity has become so corrupt. And he's about to unfold his eternal plan in real time to release and unleash a worldwide judgment in the form of a cataclysmic flood. What he's doing is he's assessing and interacting real-time with a particular course of human history And everything is unfolding exactly and precisely as he has eternally and sovereignly ordained. And unlike us, God rightly assesses the weight and sobriety of the current moment. And what that is for us, it's an invitation into that same sobriety and weight. And so when God makes this assessment of how grievous the world is and how bad it's become, we are supposed to enter into that truth and feel the weight of it. Pastor Eric Raymond talks about grief in his book, Chasing Contentment. He writes this, when we give ourselves in love to other people, we are bonded to them. We enjoy a closeness and intimacy when we love. And when a loved one dies, we feel this attachment in the opposite way. Listen to this, Grieving is the expression of love's closeness interrupted. See, God created humanity out of an abundance of his love. He so loves the world that when we sin and when we separate ourselves from him, he grieves the closeness of that relation that's been interrupted and ruptured by sin. 
And so now in his goodness and love, God must act. He can't allow this state of affairs to remain. And the world is in need of judgment. And so as we jump into verse 17, we see God's eternal plan begin to unfold. Look with me at verse 17. For behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. God is speaking to Noah here, and he finds out that there's coming a worldwide cataclysmic flood, and everything that's on earth is going to die. Like we saw in Genesis 1 as a, a, a creation account, Genesis 6 is a decreation account. In fact, the, uh, Moses is writing very intentionally. The order of events in Genesis 1 is now reversed in Genesis 6. It goes backwards. If you remember in Genesis 1, it begins with God separating the waters from the water so that dry land appears, and then he fills it with birds of the heaven, creeping things, animals, and man. Days 4, 5, and 6. And it ends with this assessment that everything is very good. Now what happens in Genesis 6? He begins with the assessment, saying everything is very wicked, and then it starts working his way backwards. He says, I will destroy man, the animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven, and that land that separated the waters will no longer be there. It, the waters will come back together. You see, it's coming back to this order of chaos like it was in Genesis 1, 2. And what's happening is God is starting over, as it were, and he will need a new Adam. Verse 9, we meet this new Adam, and his name is Noah. Genesis 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard of Noah. He was briefly mentioned in Genesis 5, and we find that Noah is from this line of promise. You remember that after Cain kills Abel, and Cain is exiled, Adam and Eve functionally have no children anymore, right? And so God gives them another son. His name is Seth. And Seth becomes this line, this faithful line that stands in contrast to the line of Cain. And as we find out in, uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis, the line of Cain becomes more and more wicked. But this line of Seth, these are the ones where the promise and the faith and the promise of God of Genesis 3.15 that one day a seed would come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent, that they are worshipers of God. That the, that, the, that the faith in God is alive and well. These were the ones in Genesis 5 who called upon the name of the Lord. And we find out that one of Noah's great-grandparents, Enoch, walked with God. The same thing was said about Noah. And so what you see happening here is this faith in this line, this promised line, has been passed down from generation to generation. See, Noah is not some random dude. He stands in a long family line. In fact, if you were to line up the names and the lifespans of this line of promise, you would see whose lives overlapped who. These people lived a very long time, and given their long lifespans, people knew multiple generations. So think about it. In our shorter lifespans, we're lucky to know our great-grandparents. How many of you like, knew your great-grandparents? Just, just a few of you. How many of you knew your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, right? Like almost nobody. But in this unique time in history, Noah would have known 
his great, 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 great grandfather, Enosh. That was six greats, if you were counting. Enosh was the son of Seth. You remember who I told you Seth was? The son of Adam. So what's my point? Noah's life overlapped Enosh by 84 years. Most of us would be lucky to get to 84, right? He knew his great times six grandfather, Enosh, for 84 years. So just think of the conversations Enosh and Noah could have had. Like, hey, Grandpa Enosh, tell me about your grandfather, Adam, you know, the first human being. I mean, imagine that conversation. Hey, what went wrong in the garden? What are you, an idiot? <laughs> right? And then he could have said, hey, tell me about your great, great grandson, Enoch. You know, the one who walked with God and was taken up to heaven, never experiencing death. See, Noah's not some random guy. He comes from the line of promise where the faith, where faith in God was alive and well. And Noah, the Bible tells us, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, which doesn't mean perfect. It just means that he was faithful and he faithfully walked with God. And then verse eight, probably the most amazing thing about Noah, verse eight, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Would that be true of all of us? Noah wasn't perfect. He had his faults, his issues, but his life was marked by the grace of God and he responded with a life of faith and obedience. And it's this man, Noah, that God chose from this line of promise to be the new Adam to start over. Holdrick Zwingli, who was a reformer, maybe one of the lesser known reformers, said this about Noah. Noah had been chosen by God to be the seed of the age to come through whom God wished to preserve a remnant of the human race. We say that among the blind, a person with one eye is king. So compared with the other mortals who lived at that time, Noah was more righteous and that by the grace and protection of God. What he's saying is that Noah received the grace of God and it was through God's intervention and protection that Noah was a man of great faith. And he received the warning of the coming flood of judgment and God gave him a plan of salvation. Look at, look at it with me in verse 18. After just telling Noah that he's going to bring a flood in verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. Though judgment is coming in the form of a worldwide flood, God has promised to save Noah, his family, and the animals so that after the flood, they can repopulate the earth. And then God gives instructions to Noah to build the ark. Now, here's what you need to know about this ark. It's huge. Don't think like this tiny little boat. It was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It's basically a massive cargo ship. It's got three levels with each one with its own deck. Rooms spread all throughout the boat. The volume of this boat was 1.5 million cubic feet. That's enough to hold 522 standard shipping containers. To put it another way, it had the capacity to hold 125,000 sheep. This is a massive boat. And he's told to load it up with two of every kind 
of animal, male and female, and all the food they're going to need to survive this journey. Now, the skeptic in the room goes, hey, wait a minute. Are you saying you actually believe all this? That this is not just some like parable? That this is genuine, true history? I mean, come on. And I'm saying, yes, this is genuine, true history. People often ask, how is it possible to fit all these animals on the boat? And for that matter, should we really take this as an account of history that it actually happened? The problem with taking this as a parable rather than history is that it's not written like a parable. See, every time in the Bible when there's a parable to teach a point, it's very clear and obvious that we're entering into parable. This is written as genuine history. It has all the markers of genuine history, details, time markers, right? In this month, at this time, on this day, this happened. It's written like history. In fact, Jesus took it as history. And when in doubt, it's always good to side with Jesus. Now, it's difficult to know how many animals were on the boat. But what we know is that the ark was massive, had a capacity to hold at least 100,000 animals with room for eight humans and plenty of room for storage of food. The point I'm trying to make without getting into all the details about which animals and how many is that people often just outright, without even thinking, dismiss the historicity of the flood. They give it no real thought. They begin with the operating assumption that it must not be true and therefore all evidence It's just outright dismissed. And friends, that is intellectual dishonesty. Did you know that there are over 250, up to 300 accounts in the ancient Near East and in the ancient ancient Eastern world of flood accounts? These come from different people groups and different faith backgrounds, people that were at odds and enemies with the people of Israel. If you want to go read one today for kicks and giggles, you can read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Don't tell anybody on social media. They might think you're a nerd. That's okay. The Epic of Gilgamesh is one of those. There's, there's almost 300 more. And all of these stories share a similar structure. A catastrophic flood brought about due to humanity's wickedness. That there's this, this, fav, this family who receives favor. That they survive on a massive boat. Animals are saved and survivors end up on a mountain. Even to the point of talking about birds being sent out in order to check and see if it's ready, if it's time to come out of the boat. Now why is this important? Because the historicity of any event gains credibility when you have a multiplicity of sources across different regions and backgrounds, and the flood has almost 300 of them. Let me illustrate this. Every Monday morning on Sports Talk Radio from uh, September to early February, what are they talking about? Commentators and listeners all weigh in on the football games from Sunday, don't they? They all bring their own perspectives on what happened. In fact, sometimes you wonder, did these two guys even watch the same game? Right? They both see it differently. But even if I haven't watched the game, when I'm listening in on Monday morning, the abundance of conversation, the abundance of reports about the game, at the very least lets me know that historically, a football game has happened. Even if I wasn't there, even if I didn't see it, that's how history works. I didn't have to see it to know that a football game happened. With the abundance of sources, 
Though there's variation, give credibility that a long time ago, there was in fact a worldwide catechismic flood. Listen, believing in the Bible will always require faith. But it's not a blind and irrational faith. It is a very credible and valid one. Okay, back to Noah. So Noah, he takes these instructions from the Lord and he sets out to build the ark. Now, if you take the size of this thing, what God is asking Noah to do is laborious. This is not a small ask, right? Did you know it took Noah somewhere between 50 and 75 years to build it? He didn't just do this on a weekend DIY deal, right? He had no YouTube. Hey, how do you build an ark, right? It became his full-time occupation. And all that wood and all the, the things that go into it, it's not a cheap one either. Did God say, and Noah, I've got all the lumber back here for you? No, no, no. Noah is asked to build the ark, and by implication, he is asked to fund it. Out of his own time and resources, Noah is tasked to build the ark. It's likely he also had help from his sons and other family members in the line of promise as well. Not only is it laborious, but the ask is ludicrous. He's instructed to build a massive boat on land. He's not building this thing next to a port of call either. Though it's speculative, just imagine the people who knew him, his friends in the community, what they would have thought about him giving up his life, giving up his financial stability and security to build something as impractical and illogical as a massive boat on land. Why would Noah do all of this? The writer of Hebrews tells us Noah did all of this as an outworking of his faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Simply put, Noah believed the word of God. He believed that everything was worth giving up if it meant obeying and following God. And after all those years, God came back to Noah and said it was time. Time to get on the boat. Verse 15 of chapter 7. And they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. There was one door to the ark, and after everyone and everything was loaded up, who shuts the door? The Lord. The Lord shuts the door. And then the Bible says that the fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were opened. What that means is water started coming from below and from above, and the earth was consumed. The Bible says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and that the waters prevailed so mightily that even the highest mountains were covered by over 20 feet of water. And then here's the sobering verse in verse 21. All flesh died. All of it. 
that moved on the earth. Birds and livestock, beasts, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. It goes on several verses just to repeat the same thing over and over. Just in case you didn't get, I think it's three more times it says, oh yeah, everything died. Everything. It died. It died. The flood of judgment came. There was nowhere to go. You can imagine people, some people, lots of people swept up in the first flood and the first you know, uh, gushing of water, but some people maybe close to mountains tried to, to get onto high ground, right? But even the tallest mountains, there was no refuge to be found, no high ground to be found. Judgment came and it consumed everyone and everything except those who took refuge in the ark. The flood of judgment came. Now let's see how salvation came from judgment. The Bible tells us that waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And then we read in Genesis 8:1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Bible goes on to tell us that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now at this point, much of the earth is still covered in water. The waters start abating and subsiding, but it will take, check this out, another 220 days until that final dove doesn't return. In total, Noah and his family and all the animals were on the ark for 377 days. Let that sink in. I've, I often thought it was just 40 days and 40 nights, like a really long month. You can, do, you can endure anything for a long month. But it wasn't a long month. It was a long year until Noah heard these words from the Lord. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Noah and his family, they came out of the ark to see a world unlike the world they left behind. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they saw, but in my mind's eye, I can just imagine the mix of tragedy and triumph of destruction all around and yet the hope of renewal standing in this place of decreation on the moment of recreation immediately after this the family will go on to build an altar to make a sacrifice and to worship the lord to express gratitude to him for their salvation god will make a covenant with noah Pastor Kevin will preach much more on that next week, and they will receive their commission as the new humanity to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. God gives them the same instructions that he gives to Adam and Eve. So that's the story of the flood. Now, what do we do with it? Just two things for you as we close. First, we need to recognize by faith, we should give our lives in service to God. That's the first implication. By faith, give your life in service to God. Noah responds to the word of God with great faith. You notice he didn't say, hey God, I get it, you're bringing the flood, you gotta do you, but I'm on this career path. 
I've got this project I've been working on, and I'd really like to see it through. He doesn't say, hey, God, I don't have time for this. Got a busy schedule. I don't have time or money or resources for this. He doesn't say, God, I've got a really busy next couple of decades. You're going to have to come back. When the word of God comes to Noah, what happened? It became his ultimate priority. Do you see that? When God comes to Noah, it becomes the organizing principle of his life. It became central. And then what happened? Everything else became negotiable. Noah is an incredible example for us to learn from. How often is it that ministry and church, our faith, our own uh, diving into the word of God becomes negotiable for everything else. We say, God, if there's time left over, I'll read my Bible. If there's time left over, if there's nothing else going on, I'll sign up to serve. Friends, there's nothing bigger or greater that you will accomplish in your life than what God has planned for you. For Noah, it was the ark. For you, I don't know the exact specific details, but friends, are we even asking God for his direction and specifics? Do we even take the specifics that he's given us in his word seriously? Like service and sacrifice to the church, like being on mission to evangelize and to serve the least, the last, and the left out. Have we made the priorities of God the priorities of our life. I'm reminded of the missionary Jim Elliott who gave his life in service to see the Harani people of Ecuador come to faith in Jesus. He ultimately, it cost him his life. And in his journal, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot take to gain what he cannot lose. That just sums up Noah's life. It didn't matter that it cost him Everything. He wasn't going to be able to take it with him anyway. He is no fool to give what he cannot take, to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, there's no greater wisdom, there's no greater reward, there's no greater display of faith than to sacrificially give of your time and resources to see the mission of God go forward. There's nothing better, nothing greater. That's the first implication. Here's the second and the last. And I think this one is most importantly. Turn from sin and trust in God for salvation. The story of the flood is a story of judgment. And it's a stark reminder that sin is serious. And friends, look at me. Judgment is real. It's real. We are, we are not a fire and brimstone church. You don't hear us harping on hell all the time. But at the same time, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And we will receive a real judgment. The flood is a reminder that our sin deserves judgment. Think about all the people at the time of the flood. They were completely fine with how they were living. The Bible says it was wicked, violent, and corrupt. And everybody was just fine with it. They didn't take God seriously. Real people died. 
And they were caught off guard because they completely disregarded the Lord. They built their whole life apart from him. And God and his justice brings judgment. Now I can think of few words as unpopular as judgment in our time. You want to gain a lot of friends? Start talking about judgment. Here's the reality. I find it very curious in our time that everybody wants justice. That's a popular word, right? Justice. But we want justice without judgment. But the problem is justice and judgment go hand in hand. They're actually from the same word group. They go together. See, in order for wrongs to be righted, meaning justice, there has to be judgment. Critics of Christianity often say, well, how can you believe? Or for that matter, follow and love a God who brings judgment. They say you can't have both a God of love and a God of judgment. But here's the problem with that. If God doesn't judge evil and sin, then he can't be a God of love. Why? Love always stands in opposition to evil. It's what it is. See, if God turned a blind eye to the sin and suffering and evil of the world, he would be indifferent, not loving. If God says, look at all this sin, look at all this corruption, I'm just going to go the other way, he would not be loving. The opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. He wouldn't care, but that's not God. A God who is indifferent to sin and refuses to judge evil would in no way be loving. And friends, he would not be worthy of your love and your trust and your worship. Without divine judgment, there will be no justice in the world. Even in a country that has one of the greatest justice systems, though it's flawed in the world, every time there's still a a sense that Full justice has not been met. And it leaves us lingering of when will justice come? And I think our problem with the justice of God is not intellectual, though we'd like everyone to think it is. I don't think we actually believe that love and justice of God are mutually exclusive. I think the reason humanity, maybe you in this room, has a problem with the justice of God is that deep down, you and I both know we're all guilty. Our problem is not an intellectual one. Our problem is an emotional one, a reality. We all know we're guilty and deserving of judgment. And so what happens is we create this supposed contradiction in order to not deal with the reality that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We simply don't want to deal with the fact that every single one of us has participated in sin and are therefore guilty and deserving of judgment. And friends, that's why we need Genesis 6. That's why we need the flood. We need to be reminded of our complicity and our participation in the sinfulness and corruption of the world. The reason the world is sinful and corrupt is not because of those out there, but every one of us in here. We take the corruption and wickedness of our heart and we fully participate in the corruption in the world. And we come right back to that tension that we started, that God is good to judge sin. It's true but he's also good to save people from sin. God is a refuge for those who trust in him. 
but he will be a terror for those who reject him. You own, it's either or. You're either going to find refuge in him. There will be no refuge from him. It's not either or, it's both and. These two truths are held together in tension. Because of our sin and rebellion, there is no refuge from the justice of God. He is coming with judgment to bring about justice. All of us are guilty. However, there is a way to take refuge in him. You will either take refuge in God or you will experience terror from him. That's why we need to get into the ark this morning. Just like there was one door to get onto the ark, there is one door to salvation and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, behold, I am the door. There's one way to get onto the ark of God's grace and mercy. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the cross becomes this ultimate display of the tension of God's goodness and love. Because on the cross, he judges sin, rightly so. But at the same time, he provides salvation from sin. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and becomes the one drowned in the flood of judgment so that you and I could take refuge in the ark of his cross. On the cross, it's where God deals with sin on one hand and extends mercy at the cost of his, friend, of his son. Friends, judgment is coming. Jesus even spoke about it. Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, talking about people at the time of the flood, eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Friends, don't be like those in the days of Noah who were caught off guard, living a life of utter disregard for the Lord. Enter the ark while there's still time. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Friends, right now, God may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Friends, God is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. For God will abundantly pardon. Friends, come to Jesus. Turn from sin. Trust in him while he may be found. Take shelter in the ark of the cross. Let's close with the beautiful words of the hymn, Here is Love. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let's pray.